Hello, everybody, and welcome to Aligning America. I'm your host, Vincent Miller, and let's get right into things. Our first story today, it's going to be a big one, so uh, sit down. Um, We're going to be talking about Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu is officially being ousted. Uh, If everything goes according to, I'd say plan, but just quite honestly, according to what is going to happen, unless there is a startling and major upset uh, in the political system over in Israel, it does appear that Benjamin Netanyahu will be brought down. He will actually, and somewhat ironically, be brought down by his student-turned-rival. Naftali Bennett was originally going to be Benjamin Netanyahu's protege. He was going to continue his legacy, but actually took a politically adverse stance uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, against Benjamin. And and ever since, they've been on the opposites of politics. They have been fighting each other. And of course, in the opposites in Israel is being a centrist and a very far right winger. But Benjamin Netanyahu, very famous for being a right-wing populist. He is very much Israel nationalist, very into a realism style of government, somewhat autocratic. Uh, He has at least ties to his previous job in the Secret Service in Israel. So, you know, it's it's definitely a an archetype we've seen before uh, in, you know, Putin and um, other other world leaders that like to lead through that style of, of, of autocracy combined with at least the semblance of democracy. Though here we are seeing it has taken all odds. It has taken every every other party aside from Benjamin Netanyahu himself to create a change, quote unquote, change coalition, which is created for the express purpose of bringing down Netanyahu. It is not aligned politically in any way other than their distrust and dislike and disdain for Prime Minister Netanyahu and their desire to bring him out of that office. It's interesting to see how you truly have everything. You have people from Likud and Black and Gold who are centrists and more more moderate, right, almost right wing. Uh, and then you have everything to the Islamic subparty in the Israel parliament is essentially, you know, the, as far left as you can get within the, the government. They are openly supportive of, of Palestine, which is nearly unheard of in any other political party there in Israel. So it is very interesting to see this group of parties, this subgroup of, of everyone other than Benjamin Netanyahu coming together to bring him down. And it truly shows how how politically divisive he is and how, yes, he has a, a ridiculous amount of support. His party is the largest party. But likewise, he has the honor of being the public target for every other party. It's much like in the United States where, yes, we only have two major parties, but you can certainly pander to groups within those parties and you can pander to groups within the two more prominent alternative parties. Looking at Greens and Libertarians, you have these options, right? But in Israel, it's entirely more diverse. Their groups are very, very well self-segregated and you can see these. Your politics is what defines you in these groups and it is very much cut and dry. You understand who you are based on who you are in what party. Uh, That's not the case in the United States. You have socially liberal, fiscally conservative across both aisles. You mix and match. I like this president this time. I like the other next time. There are swing voters and there are moderates who switch every other election. There are people who align with both parties on certain issues. I mean, there's more complexity because you can only have two parties or there are only two parties by their own duopolistic measures. But you look at Israel and they they actually have people segmented into what they would want to be grouped as. 
and about as far, you know, to the bottom denominator as you can go. So you look at that and then you see them all aligned against Benjamin Netanyahu. It's quite a sight to behold. Now, this large scale coalition spanning pretty much all of the political spectrum is being used to bring him out of office. And it looks like they will have the votes necessary to do so, though not without a bang, because, of course, Netanyahu uses his final speech to attack his rival and highlighting Biden as as a possible rival in the future, seeking to align Israel with the Republican Party in particular. Now, this seems a little odd when you just want Israel and the United States to be aligned regardless. I mean, it, it's a huge source of foreign aid. In fact, it is the largest proponent of foreign aid to Israel, and it is their largest weapon sales. So I don't understand why. Personally, I think it's a bit of a foolish move to be divisive for no reason. But you also see that while, yes, he's seeking to align himself with the Republicans more and more, that may pay off in larger and larger sums in the future when the Republicans regain the presidency or regain the House or whatever. This development is a little concerning, though all things considered, it shouldn't be a problem for Israel. I'm sure they will find a way to get their foreign aid, though after that speech highlighting Biden as a, as a possible enemy and making sure to denounce any efforts to align themselves with Palestine or even open talks with Iran, Bennett then used his time as a rebuttal, claiming that he wants good relations with both parties, the U.S., and of course, wants to stand up to Iran while making overtures and, and promising to at least talk to Palestine. Now, of course, it's difficult to, with that large coalition, truly say, oh, we will be friends with Palestine or we won't uh, without angering at least somebody on both sides. However, it is, at least honorarily speaking, a pretty good show of cohesion that nobody broke with the coalition upon stating that they wanted to talk with Palestine. That was good. We also saw that Netanyahu, of course, at the end of his speech, he said he would be back after his 12 years ending in, in office and swore that he will be back. Trump did it, too. It's not something I'm going to recommend going further to Democratic leaders or at least leaders in democratically elected countries. It's not a good look. It makes you look like the bad guy. It makes you look like the guy at the end of the movie. You know, it finishes and then the Terminator 3000s finally molds back together. It just, it looks bad, right? You, you know, you think you beat the bad guy and then he's, he's coming back tomorrow. You don't want to be the bad guy. Uh, and making these promises, while they, yes, may stir up your supporters, they certainly make you out to be a horrible person or at least maliciously aligned. So let's stop using that phrase. Let's stop saying we'll be back as some sort of rallying cry. It makes you look a little scary and it doesn't do wonders for PR. And our second story today is going to be about the G7 summit, which, of course, is the group of seven democratically elected countries who largely situated in Western Europe and the United States, though also includes Japan. They are gathering in Geneva to speak about China specifically, as the last G7 summit didn't really talk about China and was kind of criticized for leaving the elephant in the room untouched. This G7 is specifically about China and is going to openly criticize China. Not only that, but it will discuss ways and possible international developments to combat China's influence going forward, though it is rather murky as to how any of this will come together. And we'll talk about the details in just a bit. First and foremost, Biden will openly condemn Chinese efforts towards ethnic unification in China particularly highlighting areas such as Tibet, Hong Kong, and Xinjiang. Though G7 is primed to begin a new international investment group known as the B3W or the Build Back Better for the World, which is alluding, of course, to Biden's Build Back Better presidential slogan. This is 
And B3W, by the way, is obviously a dig at the BRI, the brick and road initiative that China has started, which is a, a loan scheme that provides billions of dollars of loans to African, South American, Central American and Eastern European countries, which is largely, of course, just to further ties with China to expand its influence. And loans are loans. It's not necessarily an investment that you don't want to make because it, it generally will make you money and is just a, a generally economically smart decision, especially especially from China being so isolated, they want to develop these countries into valuable allies that will already have their interests aligned with China. It's a smart move. It is a great geopolitical move. And these loans, these tens of countries that are being provided loans by China, they will develop, of course, into allies. But more importantly, it could cause a second trade conflict. And I say trade conflict because I, I wouldn't want to describe it as a Cold War. I think that's a bit too hot even describing it as a Cold War, I think might be too overstating the impact or, or the geopolitical tensions. I don't think they will be that high. However, there will there will very likely be a trade conflict being half of the world wanting to trade with China, the other half trading with the Western powers. And that could shape up to be rather awkward, though I don't think it would ever explode into a war or into rapid militarization of, of countries in Africa or whatever. I don't see that happening, at least not in the near future. But there are some some problems, right? China is one country. China is one country with a ton of resources, just an absolute crap ton of resources that they can spend however they please, because it's not a democracy. It's, a, it's an autocratic system of whatever Xi Jinping decides. Well, that's what's going to happen. And that's what makes it a powerful and quick reactionary on the, the global stage. And that's what makes it so strong as an investor, as someone who is who's just trying to brute force their way through politics because they have no other options. Now, you look at the G7, you look at seven countries that, yes, while they have at least aligned goals at the very end of the day, they themselves aren't necessarily all wanting to foot the bill or have to pick the countries they will loan to or... There are complications that come with seven countries working together, uh, internationally speaking. They have to ensure that they can't loan to people who have human rights violations, which a lot of places in Africa, the problem is they're in the middle of civil conflicts, which could be qualified as humanitarian crises, which could then negate any possible loans from the G7 group, the Build Back Better for the World group. They would have difficulty giving loans to those countries and squaring that away on a geopolitical level when they're trying to cry, you know, in the name of liberty. While China can say, I don't care what's going on, man. In 20 years, you want to back me up against the U.S. for 20 billion dollars now? And of course, they'll say yes. So therein lies the problem, right? It's efficiency and autocracy versus democracy and inefficiency in an international scale. And we've seen this before. You may say this sounds very similar to another accord, another pact that we've made in the past. But yes, the Paris Climate Accords do, at least in, in effect, have a very similar structure to what this would be structured as, where it's a, a multilateral institution, which really is the highlight of liberalism. This is the, the best we're going to get, right? People working together on a global stage to make things better. Perfect. And to combat autocracy. Amazing, right? But who wants to pay for the loans? The United States ha already has a very bloated budget, though they are the largest economic powerhouse in G7. Do they say, well, it's on us? I'm sorry, you know, I got the tab. Or is it a proportional payment system, which would still end up having the United States pay leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else? Or do you say, you know, we're all going to contribute the same amount? And then you would, of course, have a much smaller total sum 
to be able to leverage on that international stage, it, it's, it's difficult. It's a hard thing to hammer out, especially amongst seven democracies who have public approval to worry about with Japan's ballooning national debt. The U.S. is, yes, similarly, but with the U.S. about 100% debt to GDP ratio and Japan at a 250 debt to GDP ratio, I mean, there, there really is some of these countries can't afford to be throwing money out the window. They need to spend that on growth. They need to spend that on investments in their own country. So where do you draw the line and how does that become plausible on a, an effective stage where you truly do want to make an impact and you want to combat Chinese neocolonialism, but there isn't much room to be able to invest in that? It's a great rallying cry. It, it, it's a great PR stunt on the account of all of those countries. But will it actually do anything? Much like the United States has China on its board of humanitarian crises and its civics board, it's largely ceremonial at this point because everyone with a half a brain looks at that and laughs. So can the UN, can NATO, can this new G7 Build Back Better for the World Alliance do anything? Can they break the mold and actually do something? I don't know. It's a sore spot, of course, largely just being in finances because that's going to be the, the problem at the end of the day. But Will anything come of it? I don't know. I can't claim omnipotence. I, I couldn't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. But if I had to put money down on it, I think this will be a fantastic diplomatic initiative that will go absolutely nowhere without the financial backing of all seven countries and the full and total support from all seven countries, which I know for a fact will not happen because you look at places like the United States where it's so politically divided. I, I can't imagine it would get really very far in talks for funding in our own Congress or where does British Parliament go and, and what does France and the French Senate have to say? You know, it's, it's going to take a long time versus China looking at Angola saying, you want $20 billion? Fine, we can do that which at the end of the day is going to be the crux of the conflict in the coming decades. And we truly will see what prevails. Democracy, free thought versus autocracy, authoritarianism. You know, where is it going to get us on the political stage, globally speaking? And what will it develop into? Because if the brick and road initiative goes unchallenged and uncontested, there very likely will be a very large coalition of anti-American, anti-Western countries, even on our own hemisphere, even in South America, there will be countries that are very anti-American. If they weren't already now, they will be in the future with this support. And it's closely aligned with Huawei and their expansion all across the global market and Chinese 5G going all across the globe. I mean, this is, to put it very obviously, very bluntly, this will be the Cold War of our century, the trade conflict of our century. And it's definitely going to be interesting to see how it plays out, though uh, personally I can't say and I don't think anybody can. And if any expert claims to be able to, I would I would judge them with a great bit of scrutiny as it's it's really all up in the air, though it will come down to the diplomatic efforts of these seven countries in Geneva these coming days. And, and we'll, we'll really have to just wait it out and see. Thank you for listening through to the end. We'd really appreciate it if you check us out at Aligning America on Instagram and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed it and want more content like this, be sure to head over to our Patreon to ensure we can keep putting out episodes, changing hearts and minds one podcast at a time. Thank you.